Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse -verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Good afternoon to GCA listeners scattered all over the planet. I want to describe to you what happened this morning at GCA. Because it was a strange morning. First off, the recording did not record. And that was strictly human error. We just didn't push the right succession of buttons. And as a consequence, when we got done, I discovered that there was no recording. Oddly enough, because of the topics that we talked about this morning, one of the people in our congregation pointed out that in parts of the world, including Canada, our northern neighbor, the things that I said this morning wouldn't be allowed, that I could potentially be arrested for saying the things that the Bible plainly says. I just simply agreed with what the Bible says. So, ironically... The, our recording did not record. Perhaps that was providence. Perhaps that was just stupidity on my part, not pushing the right buttons. But we were also very thin on the ground this morning because here in Middle Tennessee, we are undergoing a gasoline crisis. People found out a couple days ago that there had been a leak in a pipeline that brings gasoline to the southeastern part of the United States, and that caused panic buying. And people went out with every vehicle they own, every boat, every RV, every car, and they filled them up. If they had just done what they normally do and used gas the way they normally do, uh, then everything probably would have been just fine. But as a result of all the panic buying, most people couldn't find an open gas station this morning. So I heard from several of our members who were in the outlaying areas, and they were concerned about finding gasoline coming to church. And then in the morning, would they be able to find gas to get to work? And so we were maybe half a congregation this morning. And I know that because we do this internet ministry, the people who weren't able to be with us probably assumed that they would be able to listen to the message here on our website. So I came back this afternoon. I'm standing in a completely empty building talking to empty chairs, and I'm going to reteach at least the essentials of what was said this morning. Now, of course, it's not going to have the same energy as when the room is full of people, I don't have any smiling faces to look at, and I'm not getting any positive feedback or amens to keep me going, and most of my jokes kind of fall flat in an empty room. But I do want to pick up where I left off last, well, two weeks ago, and I also do want to continue on in 1 Corinthians 6 next week. So I figured I would just come up here and reteach what we taught this morning. Now, I should also say quickly that I'm very, very appreciative to Don Tyndall for standing here last week and preaching a very good message. I'm very appreciative to the people up in Columbus, Ohio, who were so very kind to my daughter and I up at Riverside Bible Church in Columbus, Ohio. So thank you for that. 
Now, in order to address 1 Corinthians 6, we have to get some frame of reference. In the last couple of weeks during our men's meetings, the men have been talking about the fact that in 1 Peter, the book that we're currently studying, that in 1 Peter, Peter argues a lot for unity within the church. And the best way to establish unity within the church is for people to willingly do what Paul said in Philippians 2, that everyone would think of others as better than themselves, that everyone would look on the things of others and not just on their own things, and that they would have that mind in them that is the mind that Christ had in him, that though he was equal with God, he was willing to subject himself and to bring himself all the way down to the ignominious cross. And that was such a humbling experience that that mind of humility ought to be also in Christians, the people who say they are following Christ. He set the example of willingly subjecting himself to the Father's will, and we also ought to willingly subject ourselves to the Father's will. God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of specificity and of plans, and he set up the order in this world and in the church. Governments exist. Kings exist. Governors and rulers and judges exist because that's the way that God has set up a working, functioning society. But even more so within the church, God has established a particular order of authority, and he expects that order of authority to be followed. Now, it's not our nature to naturally humble ourselves under somebody else's opinion or somebody else's rulership. But in 1 Peter, he uses examples like masters and slaves and says slaves that have been converted to Christ for the sake of Christ, they ought to try to keep the peace by willingly subjecting themselves to their master. Peter then uses the exact same kind of idea to say that husbands and wives ought to give themselves willingly and subject themselves willingly to the order that God has set up. In a family, the man recognizes that there's headship over him. There is authority over him, and that's Christ. The woman recognizes that there is headship, authority over her. That's her husband. Children recognize that there is authority over them. That's their parents. And whenever the family forgets that paradigm, whenever a child rebels, well, then there's tension, pain, problems within the family. Whenever a wife forgets that that's the way that God has set up the family unit and she begins to rebel and place herself above her husband, well, then there's going to be trouble within the family. If the father rebels and forgets that Christ is his head and that the family needs to be led in a Christ-like fashion, well, then there's trouble and pain and problems within the family. But when a family recognizes Christ's authority and Christ's ability to lay out his expectations for how the family unit would function, well, then the family functions much smoother. Same thing happens within a church. We are told that we ought to give proper respect to those who have the rule over us. God has established within the church evangelists and pastors and teachers 
and overseers who look after the church, who make sure that the church is being cared for and guided in a proper way, the way that a shepherd guides his sheep. But that only works if the people who are being led and overseen and guided recognize that this is the order that God has created, and they willingly subject themselves to the authority of the leaders in the church. When that happens, and there's unity among the members of the church, and they're all looking out for each other and thinking of others as better than themselves, well, then there's going to be harmony within the church. There's going to be unity and caring for one another. The problems come when somebody decides that they don't like the position that they're in within the church body. They either start to cut and bite at other members of the congregation, or they feel that they're going to usurp the God-given leadership within a church. When that happens, the church suffers the same kind of pain and trouble that a family experiences when people get out of their God-ordained positions. So, We've been talking a lot the last couple of weeks about this concept of willingly subjecting yourself for the sake of peace and for the sake of Christ's unity within the church, Christ's spirit within the church, and so that we project to a very cynical world that the church of Jesus Christ is actually different, is actually unified, does actually look after each other. So whether we're talking about the church, whether we're talking about the family, whether we're talking about work, in all our human situations, if we recognize God-ordained authority and willingly subject ourselves to that authority, things work much better than when people get egocentric or prideful or arrogant or say, like Satan did, I'm going to place my throne in the place of the north. I'm going to be worshipped like God. When you usurp authority that is not granted to you, well, then you're going to get in trouble every time. So that's what Paul is going to bring up yet again here in 1 Corinthians 6. He's going to talk about Christians taking Christians to a human court in order to decide a dispute between two brethren, two people who have the Holy Spirit of God, two people who are supposed to be caring for each other and looking at each other as better than themselves, sometimes when they get egocentric, when they get out of line, they have a tendency to start thinking, well, who are you to do that? And then they run to the world, and they want the world to adjudicate the difference between them and their brothers. And Paul is going to ask the question, when it's Christians suing Christians at a human worldly court, why would you do that? Why instead wouldn't you just take the wrong? Why wouldn't you suffer yourself to be defrauded? Because look at the big picture. It is Jesus who gives you everything you have. It is God who knows what things you have need of. It is by God's good graces that you woke up today and knew your name and had something to eat and put your clothes on and, and went about the business of daily life. That is the grace of God working in and through you, empowering you to do these things. And it is Jesus who gives you the things of life that are necessary. So if he's your provision and somebody, a brother, 
takes from you or defrauds you in some way, then for the sake of the peace of the church, allow yourself to be defrauded. Allow yourself instead for the cause of Christ and for peace within the church, just take the wrong. Now that's obviously very different than the way we naturally think. We naturally think, no, you hurt me, I'll hurt you. But we're told to do things like love our enemies and pray for those who viciously use us. That's a Christian way of thinking. That's not the way the world thinks. That's the way the old man, the fleshly man would think, but that's not the way that the new man is called to think. So again, keep the idea of willing subjection in your mind, willing humility, willingly placing yourself in the position that God has called you to rather than becoming egocentric, becoming prideful, becoming arrogant and saying, I won't take this position. Instead, think of others as better than yourself. So now, in order to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have to back up just a couple of verses, back to chapter 5, verse 9, because Paul is going to use a particular word here. He's going to talk a lot about judging. He's going to talk about it at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, and he's going to use the word krino. Now, Paul knows how to use the intensifier kata. He knows how to say katakrima, katakrino, katakrisis. He knows how to use these kinds of words and does use them in the Corinthian letters when talking about the fact that the Corinthians were taking the Lord's Supper so wrongly that God had to impose temporal punishments on them, temporal judgments on them, in order that they wouldn't take part in the final judgment where God was going to katakrima the whole world, that he was going to ultimately judge, send people to hell, into the lake of fire. Okay, that's the intense form of judgment. But there is also temporal judgment, and this word krino that he's going to use over and over can mean civil judgment, can mean the kind of judgment that we see demonstrated all the way through the Old Testament. As early as Moses, we see him sitting from day to night judging the people that he has brought out of Egypt. And so his father-in-law, Jethro, says to him, this is too big a task for you. You can't judge millions of people all day, every day. And that word judging means to decide the matters. They have a disagreement. They have a dispute with each other. And they need somebody with authority to tell them how this thing should be adjudicated. The idea is judgment in adjudicating right from wrong, good from bad, who owns property, who doesn't own property. And it's really the way that we think of judgment even today. We go to human courts and we ask human men to adjudicate between what's right, what's wrong. If we feel that we have been defrauded in some way, we will go to court and a judge who has the authority of the civil law of America behind him will adjudicate it for us. He'll tell us how these things are going to be settled, how they're going to be solved. So this is the kind of judgment that Paul seems to have in mind as he starts talking at the beginning of chapter 6. But at the end of chapter 5, he's very clear to say, don't judge the world. That's not up to you 
leave that to God, God will judge. God will determine. God will discriminate. God will decide. And that's what that word crino means, to discriminate, to decide. Now, discrimination has become a bad word in modern parlance. People think that if you discriminate, that that's somehow inherently unfair to the people you've discriminated against. But the fact is, we all discriminate all day, every day. I will treat my children in a way that is different than I treat the children next door to my house. Because my children have a different relationship with me than the neighbor's children. In fact, if I tried to discipline the neighbor's children in some way, that would be inappropriate. But if I discipline my children, that's completely appropriate and good parenting. So I actively discriminate between my children and my neighbor's children. Anybody who's ever gotten married discriminated against everybody they did not marry. They married this particular girl instead of all the other girls, and so they actively discriminated against all the other girls in the world. And that is something we have to recognize, that God also discriminates. God decides for himself. He separates people and people groups. God elects some people. God chooses some people. God washes and sanctifies and justifies some people, not all people. And that's because God discriminates. Well, that is all wrapped up in this word crino, to make a distinction, to make a determination between one and another, and to judge what is right or what is wrong or what is fair and what is equitable and how we're going to resolve this dispute between two people. So I said, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9. It says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I do not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, two weeks ago, when we finished up that chapter, I pointed out that getting together with such a person to eat is like giving them tacit approval of their behavior. If you were talking to somebody and saying, hey, I know that you're really an idolater and a really immoral person and a drunk and a swindler, let's have lunch. That's a way of saying your behavior doesn't matter to me, a fellow Christian. If somebody claims they are Christian and their behavior continues to be like the world, then we are not to associate with that. We're not to encourage that. And in fact, we're to call such people to repent. Now, where the world is concerned, we expect the world to be covetous and idolaters and revilers and drunkards and swindlers. And we expect that out of the world. But God requires that his church be different than the world. And again, as we look into chapter 6, we're going to finish up this morning by seeing that it is God who makes that distinction. It is God who causes 
the drunkards and revilers and swindlers of this world to be washed, to be sanctified, to grant them justification in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's work of purifying his called out people, of making them different than the world. And if that is true, that God has called you to be different, well, then your behavior has to reflect that. So if someone is a so-called brother, but he's also an immoral person that has to do with sexual immorality, if they're covetous or an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? In other words, Paul is making the statement, it is my job to oversee the church and to make a discriminating choice within the church to say that there are certain people who are inappropriate within the church. There are certain things that you can do that aren't allowed within the church, but he's not imposing a general morality on the world. It's not his job to judge the world. You can't walk into a bank and complete a banking transaction with a teller if it is your job to make that teller moral. You're going to be there for a very long time and everybody else in line is going to get really impatient. Where the world's concerned, we expect them to act like the world. But where the church is concerned, we expect a higher standard. So verse 12 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Okay, so Paul has just said, that we do not judge the world. And yet, in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, he's going to say, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Okay, so he said, don't judge the world, and then he said, judge the world. This has to do with nuance of word usage. That's the only way that we can understand this apparent conflict. This morning I gave an example that I've also given in some of my videos where I've talked about the fact that through word usage, nuance becomes attached to words. I think I used the example this morning of Michael Jackson's album, Bad. We understand what good is. We understand what bad is. Good is positive. Bad is negative. And then Michael Jackson put out an album called Bad. And he was not saying this album is lousy, don't buy this album. He was saying this album is so good, it's bad. Okay, so now that's using nuance in a word so that we understand its meaning by its context. The context of the Michael Jackson album was his new music. And so we understood that him calling it bad meant that he was saying it's good. And Tom and I, growing up musicians, we used to use language like that all the time. We would say that a guy was, was really bad, or we would say, man, that guy owns a guitar. And what we meant is not he is the official owner of that guitar. We were saying he plays so well, man, he owns the guitar. And yet at the same time, I had friends who, when describing a guitar player, instead of saying he was a good player, they were saying the best he can do is he owns a guitar. Well, how do you distinguish the difference? The context does it. And so we have to recognize that Paul is saying that he does not determine good and bad. 
He does not decide on the behavior of the world because the good and bad and the behavior and the discrimination of the world is left up to God. And verse 13 says, but those who are outside, those who are in the world, God judges. And so remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Within the church, remove the wicked man. God is going to judge the world. That's not our job. But within the church, we are told to be wise and to be discriminating in the things that we allow. So that takes us to chapter 6, verse 1. See, even in an empty room, that was all introduction. And there's no one to guffaw at me this time because that was indeed all introduction. Now Paul is going to address the question of taking a brother to court. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Here's the problem. When Christians, when believers, when brethren go to a court of law that belongs to the world, they are admitting that the world is more fair, more authoritative, and more likely to give you proper sound judgment than the church does. In other words, it's admitting that the world has authority over the church. And it doesn't. The authority within the church is Jesus Christ. The authority within the church is the captain of our salvation. He is the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But it seems like these days, the gates of hell are making pretty good inroads into the modern confessing evangelical church. The world is encroaching more and more because of the scandals within the church. And so the government feels that the only right thing to do is to encroach on the church and make things right. And I blame the churchmen for that as much as I blame the world for that. The financial scandals that have happened in the church, selling three and four times vacation condos that were part of a supposed ministry, well, that's not legal. You can't sell the same property to the same people during the same time period. These timeshares cannot be sold several times. That is the very definition of a swindle. When the church raises money for a project and then the money doesn't go to the project, or it doesn't go to orphans. It doesn't go to the thing that they said it was going to go to. But meanwhile, the pastor of the church got a brand new mansion or a brand new fancy car or a plane or show horses. Well, then that's inviting the government to encroach on the church in order to demand that they do what is legal. Within the church, we're supposed to have a higher standard. So that if there is a disagreement between brethren within the church, since they count each other as better than themselves, the court of the church, the leadership within the church, even the congregation within the church ought to be able to decide these things. 
If we go to the world, we're admitting to the world that they're better than the church. They're authoritative over the church. They're higher and fairer than the church. And that ought not be. And Paul says so. Or do you not know that these saints will judge the world, discriminate, say what's right and wrong, that we will ultimately have authority also, some commentaries say that this word, crino, here does include the concept of suing somebody at law. In which case, Paul is saying, you should not sue a brother, but if you have to sue someone in the world, that would be allowable. He could also be saying that we will ultimately be glorified in the presence of God in a way that the world is not going to be. And so the very fact that we have been elected by God's grace and chosen to be in his presence is a judgment against the world who continued in their sin. Either way, Paul is saying, same word, crino, we're going to judge the world. And if you know that, if you know that the world is judged by you, then why aren't you competent to judge the smallest things, the most insignificant things within the church? Now, again, within the Corinthian church, there was a social problem because there were the high and mighty. There were the people who had plenty of money and plenty of food. This is one of Paul's disagreements about the Lord's Supper and the way that they were engaging in it. The people who had plenty would come early and they would eat till they were satiated and they would be drunk. And the people who had nothing weren't uh, receiving anything from the people who had plenty. They weren't waiting on one another. They weren't looking after and taking care of each other the way that the church should. You can naturally see where in that sort of environment there would be those who felt that they had been defrauded or that they had been wronged by somebody. And so they go and take it to the law, take it to the world. Verse 3 says, do you not know that we will judge angels? So how much more the matters of this life? If we are ultimately going to be judging the world and we are ultimately going to be judging angels, whether that means by our proximity to God against fallen angels and against the sinful world, or whether that means that we will actively be a proof and evidence that God has discriminated in favor of some people against other people, ultimately we are going to be in some form or fashion part of the adjudication against the world and angels. And if that's the case, Paul wants to know, well then why can't you decide the smallest things within the church? So then Verse 4, if then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Here's the dynamic that Paul is setting up. He is saying that the wisest men in the world, the judges of this world, are not going to have the mind of Christ and are not going to be able to adjudicate the way that the least member of the church would. Now to the high and mighty in Corinth, the least members of the church were unimportant. They didn't feed them. They didn't give them something to drink or participate in the Lord's Supper. It was a big 
social divide within the church. And so Paul is saying, take one of those lesser people, take one of the nobodies, and he's still going to be a better judge for the brethren than anybody that the world could offer. And I say this to your shame, that you could not find one wise man within the church who's able to decide these matters. But instead, in contradistinction to Jesus' own idea of what his church should be and how Paul argued that the church ought to be, instead, verse 6 says, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers, in front of the world, laying the church to an open shame by admitting publicly these two Christians can't find it within themselves or within the church to come to a fair and an equitable conclusion of their argument against each other. And so we have to come to the world who are superior to the church, who are wiser than the church, who are more authoritative in these things than the church, and we want the world to settle them. So Paul is adamantly against this. He's against this kind of thinking because the church ought to be a distinct entity on planet earth. This is the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is the bride of Christ. This is, this is the church triumphant, the church that will ultimately inherit New Jerusalem. And yet they would go to the world and say, decide among us, decide what's right and fair. That's never the way it ought to be because remember earlier, Paul described what the world was like. The world is immoral and covetous and idolaters and revilers and drunkards and swindlers. And like I said, in a moment, we're going to see that within the church, God has changed people so that they're not like the world anymore because God has drawn a distinction between the world and the church. So then the church should never go running to the world with a handout saying, oh, help us, we don't know how to conduct ourselves. We don't know how to adjudicate ourselves or how to resolve differences within the church. Now, I feel compelled to say that we are very, very fortunate here at GCA that in 15 years of being a church, I don't believe anybody has ever sued anybody. And when we have had differences, we have been able to settle those differences here in the church. We have been able to figure out a proper and a fair way to solve the differences between people. But there also just haven't been that many differences between people. We've been very, very fortunate. But that's because God assembled a group of sinners. God assembled a group of people who were quite naturally immoral and covetous and idolaters and revilers and drunkards, and God changed those people and took out their stony heart and gave them a heart of flesh and deposited his Holy Spirit into them. And so the people of GCA have worked very hard these 15 years to try to develop a sense of unity and fellowship and looking after one another and really, again, because it is Jesus who has given us everything, because it is God in his kindness who has provided us with all these things that we have, pretty much across the board, we've had that attitude of, 
it's better to take the wrong than it is to take somebody to court in front of the world in order to solve our differences. Well, here's the way Paul puts it. He says, actually, verse 7, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. The very fact that you do have lawsuits, that you are suing one another, is already a defeat for you. This is not a victory for the church. This is not a good sign for the unity of the church. It is already a sign that there are factions and differences and problems. And and so it is a defeat for you that you do already have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Because, as I've said, if it is in fact Jesus who has provided everything for you, well, then he can provide it again. And if you know that unity within the church is of utmost importance, well, then why would you even begin by taking somebody to a worldly court? Why would you even sue if you feel that you've been in any way wronged or defrauded? You can talk to the church about it and they can work it out. But even past that, Paul says, the real answer here is take the wrong. It's, it's very much like love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and viciously use you. This is not the way that the world thinks, but it is the way that Christ thinks. It is the way that Christians are called to be. Why don't you just suffer yourself to be defrauded? God knows. And if you do that for the cause of Christ, and you do that for unity within the church, it's going to be all right. You're going to be provided for. You're going to wake up tomorrow, and God is going to take care of you. But sadly, verse 8 says, on the contrary, instead of doing that, instead of being wronged, instead of taking the defrauding, instead, on the contrary, you yourselves do wrong, and you do defraud, and that, your brethren. So it's wrong that you're starting lawsuits against each other. It's wrong that you are defrauding one another, and all of this is a, a, a huge failure to the church at Corinth. It is a defeat for the church at Corinth. I have to point out once more that I appreciate that despite the fact that Paul is describing a really dysfunctional church, that they are also a church that has received the Holy Spirit. They've abused the gifts of the Spirit, but they did get the gifts of the Spirit. And never does Paul reach the point of saying, well, never mind, you're just not a church. Instead, he corrects them, he instructs them, he tries to bring them into line with what Jesus' own expectations are for his church. So you defraud, and you do wrong, and you take each other to court, and you have lawsuits against each other. Why wouldn't you just take the wrong for the peace of the church and for the cause of Christ? The fact that you're not that way is to your shame. It's a defeat for you. So verse 9, and this is where suddenly the controversy raises its ugly head. Paul asks a very significant, very pointed question. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
there are two sides to that statement. One side of it is the actual truth, the axiomatic truth, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God who is nothing but holiness and righteousness. So the unrighteous, who he's going to describe in a moment, are left outside of God's ultimate kingdom, God's domain. And that's the world. As the world continues being the world and acting like the world, they're going to be left outside of the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, everybody that God chooses, everybody that God elects, are in fact worldly and sinful and depraved and guilty of the things that Paul is about to list. But when God chose them to be in his everlastingly holy presence, he did something more for them that solved their righteousness problem. He washed them. He separated them. He sanctified them. He justified them. He imputed Christ's own earned righteousness to the people who had no righteousness. So he justified them in the name, in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So it's still true that nothing that is unrighteous is going to inherit the kingdom of God, but he's not going to leave us in our unrighteousness. He is going to provide for us everything we need in the washing and the redemption and the sanctification and the justification. He's going to provide everything necessary so that we are righteous in his eyes. It is an imputed righteousness. It is not an earned or an individual righteousness. But don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And now he's going to list some types of people who shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's pornaya, that's the word from which we get pornography or porn. It's a word that encompasses all sexual immorality. It's not limited to any one kind of sexual immorality, but it encompasses a great many things. Fornication, nor idolaters, those who worship an idol, those who think that they worship Christ or worship God, but also worship some other thing. Now, of course, idolatry was prominent in Corinth, and so it struck the Corinthians in a much different way than it strikes us, but idolatry still runs rampant here in the world today. There are people in India starving, worshiping cows. There are people still worshiping the various gods of the Hindu religion. There are people here in America who are still worshiping sports stars or rock stars, or people will worship something. And so idolatry is alive and well in the world. And then adulterers, those who have sex outside of marriage. The only good and right, biblically legal approach to sexuality is one man, one woman being married and being sexual partners with each other. Anything outside of that is considered adultery. Nor effeminate, nor... Here's the controversial one, nor homosexuals, 
We'll get back to that in a minute. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so Paul has just gone through a long list of character types, activities of mankind that preclude the ability to be part of the kingdom of God. And most people, most everyone, even very liberal people would agree that God has the right to say, well, not fornicators and certainly not idolaters. They would agree that they don't like thieves. No matter how liberal people are, they would say, well, thieves, no. I'm going to call a cop. Even if I hate cops, I'm calling a cop if I'm stolen from. Or the covetous. You don't want people taking your stuff or longing after your things. You don't, for most of us, don't like drunkards, especially when they're behind the wheel, nor drunkards, revilers, swindlers. We hate it when we're swindled. We hate it when we get on the phone with somebody who called us at random and tries to swindle us out of our money. There are people who would agree with everything in that list. God has every right to keep people out of his kingdom who participate in these activities, except one. And in this day and age, the hot-button issue is homosexuality. Now, Paul has used a particular compound word here in the Greek. Paul loves his compound words. He has used the Greek word arsenokoitos, which is a combination of two words, one that is the standard Greek word for a male, and the other word refers to a bed or a couch where sexual activity takes place. So, unquestionably, the combined Greek word means having sex with men. Now, as Paul goes through this list, he also listed effeminate because in a homosexual relationship, there is usually one man who takes on the more dominant role and then there is one man who takes the more effeminate role, the more submissive role. And that's the word that Paul has used here, malakos. It means soft. It means effeminate. So Paul has described both sides of the homosexual relationship here. So neither effeminate nor homosexuals are going to enter into the kingdom of God. But Paul does not leave it there. At verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. Now, this is vitally, vitally important. Because Paul does not say, and such are some of you. You're continuing in your sin. You're a drunk Christian, or you're a swindling Christian, or you're a fornicating, idolatrous Christian. And yet today, there are people who say that they are gay Christians. They argue that they are both Christian and gay, and they argue that these rules are 2,000 years old, and that God has somehow graduated from his old mindset, his old thinking back in the Old Testament under the law where he said things about homosexuality, all that burning of Sodom, that that doesn't count anymore. God is much more liberal-minded now. He understands, and because people have the attraction to the same sex, they ought to be able to act 
on that attraction and they ought to be able to have sex with each other. And that's really what Paul is driving at here, the practice, the act of homosexual sexuality. But God does not change. God never changed his mind. With God, there's no variableness, neither the shadow of turning. God has not said something in his word that he changed his mind about later on, or else God would have to admit that he was wrong the first time. When he came up with these ideas out of his infinite mind, understanding the end from the beginning, and, and declaring the end from the beginning, he was just wrong. And when he recognized his moral wrongness, he changed his mind. And that simply does not and cannot exist. A God who changes his mind can indeed be a capricious God. He can say one day that he loves you and that he gives you everlasting life, but then he can change his mind and say, well, I've, I've thought about it. I didn't realize you were going to be like that, and I've changed my mind. So Paul's statement here that adulterers and effeminate and homosexuals and thieves and covetous drunkards and revilers and swindlers are not going to inherit the kingdom of God still stands today. These are the characteristics of people who are like the world. And again, we expect the world to be like the world. I expect the world to embrace homosexuality. Of course they're going to, because they are the world. But the world has very successfully influenced the morals and the ethics and the ideals of the church. Until today, people are ordaining gay clergy, but the Bible never ever allowed that anybody who is actively practicing homosexuality is going to inherit the kingdom of God. But there's good news, there's hope, because Paul said, and such were some of you. Now again, the fact that Paul said such were means that there's no such thing as a drunk Christian who's okay, or a reviler Christian who's okay, or a swindling Christian who's okay, or a homosexual Christian who's okay. Everything in this list precludes attendance in God's kingdom. But God has a solution. He knows that everybody's a sinner. He knows that every human being is going to be guilty of some or many of these things. And so as a consequence, God solved our sin problem for us. That's why Christ came to the planet. It's why he died and resurrected again, so that we could be washed of all our sins, so that we are sanctified, that we are hagiasmas, that we are set apart for God's own use. And so that we could be justified, which has that root of decay in it in the Greek, which is the word for righteous. It is God righteousifying particular people. God is justifying them in the name, in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So one thing that I pointed out this morning was that only Christianity of all of the respected religions of the history of the world only Christianity holds out hope for the homosexual. I was asked after the service this morning, I was asked by a girl who 
She said she has a, a distant friend, a friend of a friend, who is homosexual, but he also is a Christian person who is trusting that Christ is going to help him with his homosexuality. He is not practicing, he is not participating in sexual activities like Paul describes here, and that he is battling his same-sex attraction and refusing to act on it. And I'm encouraged by that. I think that's good. I think that regardless of what the sin is, because homosexuality is just another one of many, many sins that proves that we're all sinners. We're all sinners, and one of the manifestations of our sinfulness is homosexuality. But so is adultery, and so is fornication, and so is thievery, and so is drunkenness and, and swindling people. These are all proofs that we are actually sinful. But only Christianity holds out the hope that Christ is such a complete Savior that he can actually save somebody out of any one of these sinful activities. In David's case, even murder. In Abraham's case, even lying. The Bible is full of stories of sinners who have been saved, who have been redeemed by God's overwhelming grace and kindness to them. And again, only Christianity holds out that kind of hope. Any religion, even warped versions of Christianity, any religion that says, clean yourself up and then God will accept you, doesn't understand that God is the actor. He's the one who does the washing and the sanctifying and the justifying. He's the one who brought about the redemption of his chosen elect people, which includes every kind of person in this list. But if you see yourself in this list and see yourself in Christ, then understand that Christ has called you to a different kind of behavior than the rest of the world. Your sin problem has been taken care of in Christ. But knowing that Christ in his crucifixion has solved your sin problem, has taken the curse, and has established your everlasting perfection before God, knowing that, then the proper response is a loving response that also acts in accordance with what we know about ourselves, about our new and redeemed people. So I say all that to say this. I'm nothing but empathetic. Again, going back to the conversation I had with the young girl after church today, I said, your friend, the homosexual person, has very much the same problems that I have. I mean, I'm going to be 61 this Wednesday, but I still know what an attractive woman looks like. I'm still attracted to attractive people, but I know enough to know not to act on it. And I resist the desire to act on it because of Christ, because of my calling, because of my position in the church, and because of everything that I know that Christ did for me. And so the person who says, I have same-sex attraction, but I'm battling it, I'm not acting on it because the cause of Christ is more important to me, well, I'm empathetic. I'm on your side. I'm all for you. The problem is too much of the church world isn't even fighting it anymore 
and has attempted to define a new category of Christians, that is, the actively participant homosexual Christian, which Paul said right here is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. People who act like that unrepentantly, unchangingly, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is why, when I got done this morning, one of the men of the church said, you know, you can't say that out loud anymore. It won't be long before the government is going to shut down this kind of speech because they believe that this is hate speech. But it's not hate speech. It's hope speech. It's speech about the sin that courses through all of us that has created a division between us and God and how God has solved our sin problem and how we are rightly called to react to him as a result of him solving our sin problem for us. And that's hopeful. That is a loving message. That is a message that you can bring to any sinful person, including the homosexual. But if you're talking to a murderer, if you're talking to an adulterer, if you're talking to an alcoholic, if you're talking to a crack addict, you can say the same thing, which is run to Jesus. If you run to Jesus, he's the solution to your problem, however your problem manifests itself. So Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And that's where we ended this morning. So in brief, don't be suing each other. Among the Christians, Within the church, look on each other as better than yourselves. Take the low seat willingly. Subject yourself willingly. Humble yourself on purpose because that's what God has called you to. Recognize that there are authorities that God has set up on purpose so that the society and so that the world doesn't run willy-nilly. There are kings and princes and governors, and, and God has established those things on purpose so that there is at least some semblance of lawfulness in the world. But within our families, within our marriages, and within our churches, God has equally set up authority so that there are overseers, so that there are people who make sure that we're safe and that we're conducting our lives in a way that is ultimately pleasing to God because that's our end goal. So don't sue each other at law. Don't say that the world is superior to the church. Recognize that the church is superior to the world. One day we will judge the world. One day we will judge angels. And therefore we ought to be able to settle any dispute that's within the church. And our hope and our looking forward to our ultimate redemption and our presence with a holy, righteous God is all dependent on God himself, who is the actor, who will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. The world that continues in its wanton sin, whatever that sin may be, is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. 
But God, thank God, saves sinners. And those that he elects and calls, he completely and utterly redeems, justifies, sanctifies, calls to himself, and washes clean of all their sin by the finished work of Christ. It is God who does these things on behalf of those people who he has chosen. God discriminates. God chooses. God elects. And if he has elected and chosen you, well then just thank God and willingly subject yourself to the authorities that he has put over you in this lifetime. Now, when I got done this morning, there were a couple of good comments, a couple of good questions, and I tried to include a couple of them in this message. I can't remember them all, but I do remember that one woman pointed out that the very same people within the church that will say, oh yeah, those homosexuals also agree with adultery. Unmarried people living with unmarried people and being sexually active. That they tolerate within the church while not tolerating these other things. Well, that's just as wrong as everything else that's in this list. The list is a purposeful list. The list is just one of several lists that you find in the New Testament that says the world is like this, sinners are like this, and the church is not to be like this. So I don't understand why any church would tolerate anything that's on this list and uh, not call it out for what it is. You'll be happy to know that when I finished this morning and said, say goodbye to the Internet congregation, everybody in the room in unison all said goodbye to you, but there's nobody here but me. So I guess it's up to me. So goodbye. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.